old enough to be my grandfather. He was um, skinny and tall. He always wore a full suit, always with a bow tie, thick glasses, full head of hair. None of those details are important, but I liked his look. Uh, so one day in this class, he's handing back papers uh, that he had um, assigned and we had done and returned. He had graded. He's handing them out. And one student raises his hand and asks in front of the entire class why he got such a poor grade. And this professor like looked around the room, kind of surprised that the student uh, like brought this up in front of everyone. Uh, but the professor decided to engage. And so he says, well, you handed it in a week late and you didn't even meet the minimum word count, which is like the easiest criteria to hit. You could have literally written the word word like a hundred more times to do that. And, and so the student replies, kind of shocked, but goes, this is a Christian school. This is a Bible class. Shouldn't you be gracious? And the professor says, son, grace would be me writing the paper for you. Mercy would be me giving you a passing grade, which I did despite the fact that you should have failed. And, and so that was a crazy day in class. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I will remember that forever. Uh, but it's true, the professor gave him mercy in giving him that passing grade when he should have failed. And, and it just wasn't as much mercy as the student would have wanted. And so today we're in week three of our series looking at the, the core values we have here at Liberty Northeast. Um, so Evan walked us through what it means to be a people of worship. And then Tim last week spoke to us about what it means to be a Christian community. And this morning I get to remind us and challenge us that an important part about worship and a core characteristic of our community is mercy. And so today I want to spend our time looking at how the gospel frees us for mercy. And so if you didn't know, man, this is key to the Christian faith. Like right away, beginning in Genesis, mercy is a characteristic of God that's recognized by others and named often. It is important, but it's also multifaceted. In fact, in the Hebrew uh, language, there's two like primary words that often get translated as mercy. And so in other words, mercy is so important to God and for his people from the beginning that despite Hebrew being uh, a language with a considerably small vocabulary, they still believed that mercy required at least two words to express the fullness of all that it is. And I think that's important for us to know and consider whenever we read a passage that uses the word, because I think for us it would be easy to assume that we know what mercy is. But I don't want us to be so quick to assume. And so this morning I hope that you stay with me as we look at what mercy means to God and, and so what it should mean to us. Because mercy is not just a core value for us at Liberty Northeast, but instead it's core to the nature of God and all his people. And so Jim read for us a quick excerpt from Matthew chapter 9 in which Jesus tells those around him that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so to give that some context, here's what's happened so far in chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 begins with Jesus entering into his home city of Galilee, and upon his arrival he's greeted by people 
presenting to him a paralyzed man, and it says that Jesus recognizes the faith that they have, and so he tells this man to take heart and that his sins are forgiven. And for that, some accuse him of being a blasphemer. And so Jesus responds asking, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And and, and so he, he says to show you that God has given me this authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic man and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately the man rose out of the bed and went home. And this crowd is afraid and it says they glorified God because of what they saw. And so then as this chapter continues, Jesus sees Matthew, this tax collector at the time, and he tells him to follow him. And Matthew rises and follows him and he follows Jesus to a house where Jesus then sits at a table with those who would be called sinners and other tax collectors and with his disciples also. And and so then the Pharisees, they come and they see this taking place and they ask God's followers why he would eat with such a people, like the lowest of the low. And Christ hears this and replies, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. So go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice for i came not to call the righteous but the sinners so jesus tells these people to go and learn what this means that he desires mercy not sacrifice and so this morning after hearing jesus's call i thought this morning we should go and do likewise and and so there in verse 13 jesus isn't just sending these people on some fool's errand to go figure this out on their own he's actually explicitly and intentionally pointing them back to the book of Hosea, Jesus is telling them to go and reread this book because they have clearly forgotten everything that God had spoken and taught through his prophet there. And so uh, we're not going to be able to walk through the entirety of the book of the prophet Hosea, but I would encourage you this week to go and read that book. It's 14 very short chapters. It won't take you long at all. And if you don't know what you should be reading and you're maybe in your devotionals this week, split it up into like two chapters a day. Uh, read through the book. I don't think you'll regret it. But for the purpose of today, um, I'm just going to give you a, a summary of the first portion of the book. And so we have uh, Hosea, this prophet who we're presented with, and he lived more than 200 years after the time of the judges that we just got out of in our last series. And so he's living in um, northern Israel, Ephraim. Um, uh, Israel's been split at this point into two nations with Judah to the south. And, and man, the people of Ephraim have just gone so far astray. And so during Hosea's time, the people have all but forgotten Yahweh. They're worshiping another god, Baal. They're, they're putting their trust in political alliances with Assyria and Egypt. They're allowing social injustices to occur all throughout the land. But then they would go and they would burn their offerings to Yahweh. And they would make sacrifices if everything between them was good. Have you ever done that? And so Israel during Hosea's day knew God in name only, but there was no knowledge, no understanding of who he was or what it meant to be his people. And so in chapter 1 through 3, God has his prophet Hosea marry a woman and start a family with her. And he has this prophet enter into covenant relationship with someone who by verse 2 or two verses into the text is called a woman of whoredom. 
And so as the description implies, his wife that he's committed himself to is either already or becomes an adulterer and goes astray. And while this is happening, God calls for Hosea to pursue this adulterous woman and to redeem her out of the slavery that she's fallen into and to restore her back to himself and to forgive her and to love her and to be to her the husband that he committed to be. And in chapter 2 and 3, God reveals that Hosea's marriage is a prophetic symbol of his relationship with his people. When he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and after freeing them from Egypt, only to see them chase after other gods and other nations. And so as God mourns his wife and expresses his anger, he considers divorcing her, but instead determines to pursue his wife and renew his covenant with her instead. And in chapter 2, verse 19, he says that he will betroth her to himself forever because of his righteousness and his justice and his steadfast love and mercy because of his faithfulness. And this verse is important because in it, both Hebrew words for mercy, hesed and raham, are invoked, and I pronounced neither correctly. And so first, hesed, it appears like over 250 times in the Old Testament, it's, it's most often translated as mercy, steadfast love, loving kindness, or faithfulness. And the second, raham, it's this magic word because it appears as a verb, something that you do, as a noun, something that you give or receive, sometimes even a place, and as an adjective, something that you are. And so the word raham is also the Hebrew word for womb. And so it's this word that means compassion and tenderness and a deep love from within. And so when these two words are put together, we begin to see this full picture of the richness of the mercy that God enacts and gives and makes a home for, but it's also what he desires from us in return. And so chapter 3 tells us the consequences of abandoning and rejecting God's mercies, imminent defeat and exile. But he also offers us hope in this promise of a full restoration for all who would repent and take his offer to come back. And he promises a messianic king who would come uh, and who God would use to bring his blessings to their fruition. And so here in these first three chapters of Hosea, God lays out for us this picture of the covenant that he made and our unfaithfulness to it. And he calls his people out of their sin and he warns them of the consequences it has, but he also promises to remain faithful to them because of his hesed, his loving kindness, and his rahem, the compassion and deep tenderness he has for us like that of a mother and the child that she carries. And, and so here, where, where a, a quarter, a third of the way through my time this morning that I have, and I recognize that we haven't even gotten to what I said was the main text of this sermon, but the reason I've spent all of this time building up to the, this, this verse that Christ cited is because I want us to understand what this mercy is that he tells us that he desires. And I want us to come to a central definition together, and in order to do that, we have to see how Hosea's life is this picture of biblical mercy, God's mercy depicted and defined. And so from that, we see that biblical mercy is a commitment to steadfast love, loving kindness. Biblical mercy 
is a commitment to steadfast loving kindness. It's the kind of a commitment that we see through Hosea committed to his wife, even in the midst of her unfaithfulness. And it's the same kind of commitment that God has had and continues to have with us, has said. But I don't just want us to see it as like this definition. I also want us to see what it looks like. And for that, we have to see the picture of God as a husband who loves his wife, regardless of her sins against him, and understand that even though he has the right to leave that covenant, he chooses to stay and to pursue her and to forgive her and to pay whatever price is required to bring her home so that he can show his tender compassion despite all the pain that she's caused. And I want us to take time to see these words in Hebrew and all the different ways that they're used to see them for him, this kind of mercy that is an action, something that we do. And to see that it's also a place that we create and invite people into. But that it's also something that we give and can receive such that it becomes a part of our core. And it becomes an adjective and it's something that we're described as and known by. And I want us And I want you to know that it's the same word for a womb so that we have together this beautiful picture and understanding that mercy, according to the Bible, is the same tenderness and compassion and love that a mother would show to a child that they carry in their womb. This is biblical mercy defined and depicted. Biblical mercy is a commitment to a steadfast, loving kindness expressed in compassion and a tender heart towards those who may not return it. And so this is mercy. And I want us to know and understand that because that's the kind of people and this is the kind of place that I want us to be. And I want us to be a people who worship God in such a way that we are a community of this kind of mercy. And I want that because that's what God wants of us And we see that clearly communicated as we finally enter into uh, chapter 6 of the book of Hosea. And so in this next section of the book, there's these poems full of indictments against God's people because they're not a community of mercy. And their worship has become empty. But scattered amongst these warnings and accusations are also these invitations to repent and hopefully reminders of God's mercy and promises to us. So so read with me now, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea says, Come, let us repent to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and will bind us up. And after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is now a city of evildoers tracked with blood. 
As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. So here in this poem of chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, gives us this call and invitation to repentance. Come back to me. Come back to the Lord. God has judged us because of our sins, but he will heal us and bind our wounds if we return. Repent. And if we can return, we can do so in confidence because we remember his promises to us. And all he's done for us, his steadfast love is as sure as the dawn. He will restore us and will live with him forever if we turn from our false gods and trust in him instead of our weak human institutions. Hosea is saying, repent and remember. And so I say the same to you because we in our times aren't really that different. We're living now in this nation that's full of adulterous people who are so wrapped up in political powers around them, wrapped up in their own lives and worlds. We have people who have turned our nation and its freedoms into idols, yet who simultaneously show no honor to the authorities that are in place without showing any respect for the government. And at the same time, we have people who have turned our government and its rulers into their own gods and idols while simultaneously showing no loving kindness or mercy towards the country. Today, it's unlikely that you carve statues of your own or cast images to worship or give offerings, but instead we hang flags or slap stickers on our cars and we pledge allegiance to those things or we defend those things with passion. Or we purchase more and more and we buy bigger and bigger houses pursuing gods like comfort or prosperity, freedom, or some other cause. And so the warnings and indictments in Hosea's poems aren't just for the people of the past, but continue to be relevant for us today. The call and invitation is for us to repent, and we should, and we should do it with eagerness because we remember the mercies that God has shown us time and time again, and we should be here this morning with a goal to press on together to know the Lord who's as sure as the dawn. And in our pursuit to be a people of worship, we should pursue worship that's, that's acceptable to God as we strive to be the kind of community that spurs one another on to good deeds and who carry each other's burdens and should be known to each other and to this neighborhood around us by the mercies that we do and that we give and that we are. And, and then in verses 4 through 10, we see that this house of Israel has become a place of horrible things. And they've transgressed the covenant and they've been unfaithful. And because of that, their sacrifices and their offerings have been rejected by God. And in the middle of that picture of the people is where verse 6, we get this passage that Jesus quotes in Matthew 9. Where he says, I desire mercy, steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so multiple times in this is book, it's clear that God would not accept his people's worship anymore. And he won't hear their prayers, and he won't receive their offerings because they're empty and faithless. And man, as a, as a pastor, there's sometimes this fear that uh, maybe even a temptation that 
in one of our gatherings, could this become a time like these? And it's a worry on a Sunday when I realize that I've been so focused on how others might see me or receive what, what I'm saying instead of recognizing the reality and the priority and perspective that it, it should have been on God and how his people receive him and how they would respond to him and his word. And it's a fear on the weeks that we promote the needs uh, for more people to step into positions of mercy and to serve. And, and we wonder, man, is anyone going to step up or are our regular calls for action, uh, are they falling on deaf ears? Guys, I'm constantly blown away by the generosity that I've seen here and, and the commitment to worship and, and the community that we have. And that's not to say that I haven't seen mercy, but if I had to choose, I'd say that this is an area that we as a community need to grow in. And I don't say that as a strong criticism. It, it comes off more critical than I mean it. But as I evaluate us as a people of worship and community, I think our weakest area of those three is mercy. And I think that's because it's so hard to do. But it's necessary. And I bring this up confidently this morning because I don't think it's for a lack of willingness or desire. I have zero doubts or worries that as we continue to grow as a church that will grow in mercy, I just think it needs to be more present on our radar. You know, even now, there's opportunities for you to lean into mercy here and in our community. The offering that we take every week, just so you know, it doesn't go directly into my pocket. Uh, instead, we have constant communication with people here, you, in our community with needs that we do our best to cover and provide for however we can. And, and we provide things for our neighborhood all throughout the year, large events, small things, out free of charge for those in our community, but it costs some, cost something for us. Uh, but, but more than that, we, we just spoke, we have our ESL class, we have opportunities like that where we need people who will step up and serve our neighborhood. We, we give calls for our deacon team to grow. Guys, we need our deacons team to grow. We need people who are committed to helping us find and fill the needs of the people around us. And so that means we need you to prayerfully consider if that team is for you. And listen, I'm not going to say any names up here this morning, but you probably know who you are. We as a church need to grow in mercy. We need to be a people of mercy, not because of any indictment I'm trying to make against you this morning, but because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Which is a great transition back to chapter 9. In Matthew, if we were to go back to chapter 9, we'd see this chapter begins with Jesus healing a paralyzed man, despite the criticism he gets for it. We'd find Jesus eating with and then inviting into his community those which others would discard or discourage. We find Jesus eating not with the elites of his day, but the outcasts. We see Jesus heal the blind, give voice to the voiceless, and my favorite, give time and then heal the suffering and unclean woman. Who, who would have been without care for 12 years. In Mark's telling of that same encounter, it says that she told Jesus the whole truth. And so a woman rejected by society for 12 years tells Jesus everything. 
And so I wonder how much she had to say after 12 years of rejection. And I wonder how long Jesus made everyone else wait while he listened. Mercy. And so this chapter ends saying Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And it says that when he saw this crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So biblical mercy is this commitment to a steadfast, loving kindness expressed in a compassion and a tender heart towards those who may not return it. And this kind of mercy is defined time and time again throughout Scripture in the way that God continues His care for us despite our constant unfaithfulness and idolatry. And it's depicted in many ways from the way a husband is committed to his wife and in the perfect example of Christ who, who's renewed His covenant to us and has made us His bride and who shows tender love and compassion to us despite the times we fail with the same care that a mother would have for the child she carries in her womb. And he expresses that to us with a constant invitation and open door to his home that he's made and is preparing and will provide in full for us. And so Hosea prophesies of a messianic king who would heal the sick and bind the broken and on the third day rise, raising us also to live with him forever and as we find in matthew chapter 9 jesus is that king and so we're here this morning because we worship him as such we're here this morning because we are a community that desires to be a people of worship and community because that's who we should be and strive to be known by and create a place for and to show and give and receive that kind of mercy because that's what God desires and has shown to us, and that's the kind of worship that's acceptable to him. And so biblical mercy is a commitment to steadfast, loving kindness expressed in compassion and a tender heart towards those who may not return it, and that's the hardest part. But if that's not who we are, we need to repent and remember and then respond with the renewed resolve to become that which God desires us to be. Let's pray.